welcome to A-Minder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on neurodegenerative disease research so that you can stay up to date with the newest findings. Every month, our team of scientists will sort and organize the titles into themes and present shortened versions of the abstracts. We'll make sure to mention the title, the journal, the first author, and the last author for each publication. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast helpful. Morning or evening or whenever you're listening. This is Nyla, and today I'll be covering a subsection of the preclinical testing theme. So these are papers published in June 2020 on using animal models to test uh, potential therapies for AD. So we have divided the preclinical theme into 13 sub-themes, and I'll be going through six of them. So if you're interested in other preclinical testing studies, I recommend you check out the other two episodes that have come out or will be coming out shortly on preclinical testing. So for today, I'll be covering two papers uh, that target the cholinergic system, or specifically acetylcholinesterase. Then I'll cover two papers on targeting the glutamatergic system, followed by five papers on targeting synaptic function. And then we've got two papers on tau phosphorylation and tau protein pathology and targeting that for treatment, followed by six papers on amyloid beta-mediated toxicity and production. And lastly, I'll be finishing off with three papers in the other theme. So that's leftover papers that we couldn't slot in. Okay. Let's get started with uh, the cholinergic system. So first up, we have a paper that examines how exogenously supplementing choline acetyltransferase, which uh, synthesizes acetylcholine, might improve cognition in an AD mouse model by compensating for decreased acetylcholine levels. And I'll probably refer to choline acetyltransferase as CHAT throughout. So the title of this paper is Functional Compensation and Mechanism of Choline Acetyltransferase in the Treatment of Cognitive Deficits in Aged Dementia Mice. It was published in Neuroscience by first author Zhu and last author Li. This group compared the treatment efficacy of recombinant CHAT and Dinepazil in aged dementia mice and explored their mechanisms. Both treatments significantly shortened swimming times in the Morris water maze in mice with mild and moderate dementia, with no significant difference between the two treatments. However, in mice with severe dementia, the recombinant CHAT treatment led to noticeably shorter swimming times than did Donepazil. This suggests greater treatment efficacy of CHAT, which was also observed in APP-PS1 transgenic mice. So that's another AD model. Gene function annotation and enrichment analysis showed that CHAT activates the acetylcholine, or ACH, and vascular endothelial growth factor, which is VEGF, pathway, and was thereby implicated in neuroprotection, synaptic plasticity, neuronal survival, and cerebrovascular remodeling. In contrast, donepazil was significantly correlated with immune inflammatory response and the insulin and IGF-1 signaling pathways, suggesting that the two treatments improve cognitive function via very different mechanisms. Overall, this work suggests that the recombinant chat is a promising candidate for novel AD drug development. 
Moving on, the aim of the next study was to evaluate whether a plerinone, which is an aldosterone antagonist, has therapeutic potential for AD. This paper was published in ACS Omega by first author Hira and last author Ahmad, and the title of the paper is In Silico Study and Pharmacological Evaluation of a Plerinone as an Anti-Alzheimer's Drug in STZ-Induced Alzheimer's Disease Model. The study was conducted on 60 albino mice of either sex, which were subcategorized into six equal groups. One group acted as a control, another was administered streptozotocin, so streptozotocin or STZ kills insulin-producing beta cells, and this apparently induces memory impairment. The third group received standard treatment with paracetam, and the remaining three groups received varying oral doses of aplerinone. So from the abstract and even from a, a first glance at the paper, I couldn't quite tell which groups received drug treatments after receiving uh, STZ, so I would check the paper for details on that. But the study was carried out over 14 consecutive days, and streptozotocin was administered through the intracerebroventricular route on the first and third days to induce memory impairment. The effects of STZ and drug treatment were evaluated using the behavioral tests including passive avoidance, elevated plus maze, Morse water maze, open field, and balance beam. The authors also checked for various antioxidants in brain tissue to assess as a readout of oxidative stress, as well as biochemical markers of AD pathology. An in silico study first confirmed that aplerinone inhibits acetylcholinesterase, and the authors found that the highest dose of this drug was most effective in improving cognition and in reducing various biomarkers of AD. So next up, we have two papers on targeting the glutamatergic system. For background on the first one, uh, group 1 metabotropic glutamate receptors, so that's mGluRs, and this includes mGluR1 and mGluR5, have recently been studied for their role in AD and whether modulating them could have a therapeutic effect. So that's exactly what this first paper looks at. The title is Resveratrol Differently Modulates Group 1 Metabotropic Glutamate Receptors Depending on Age in SAMP8 Mice. The first author is Sanchez Malgar, and the last author is Martin, and it was published in ACS Chemical Neuroscience. So resveratrol is a natural polyphenolic compound that is thought to be neuroprotective, but it is unclear how it acts on mGluR signaling. In this study, the authors gave 5- and 7-month-old SAMP8 mice, which I presume is an AD mouse model, um, so they gave them resveratrol in their diet to assess the possible modulation of group 1 mGluRs. They found that mGluR5 is downregulated as age increases, irrespective of resveratrol, whereas mGluR1 was upregulated or downregulated by resveratrol depending on age. So in other words, this depended on mGluR5 levels. The treatment also resulted in lower glutamate levels, higher synapsin levels, and unchanged caspase 3 activity, which the authors conclude suggest a neuroprotective role. 
So the second paper discusses the PICOM gene, which has been linked to AD risk, and the paper looks at whether increasing its expression could be beneficial. And I didn't know what PICOM is, so I looked it up. It stands for Phosphatidyl Inositol Binding Clathrin Assembly Protein. Alright, so this paper is called PICOM Rescues Glutamatergic Neurotransmission, Behavioral Function, and Survival in a Drosophila Model of Amyloid Beta-42 Toxicity. It was published in the Journal of Human Molecular Genetics by first author Yu and last author Partridge. So genome-wide association studies have linked the PICOM gene to AD risk, and it has been implicated in amyloid beta-42 production and turnover. Here the authors tested if it plays a direct role in modulating amyloid beta-42 toxicity in Drosophila. They found that the overexpression of PICOM Drosophila ortholog, which is called LA, rescued A-beta-42 toxicity in an adult-onset model of AD without affecting A-beta-42 levels. They also report that A-beta-42 caused an accumulation of presynaptic vesicular glutamate transporter, that's V-glute, and increased spontaneous glutamate release, which is in line with previous work that shows that an imbalance in the glutamatergic system could be involved in AD specifically in this case, um, the toxic overstimulation or uh, increased activity in the glutamatergic system. These phenotypes were reversed back to control levels by overexpressing LAP, and as a reminder, that's the PICOM ortholog in Drosophila. This was in part because LAP modulates the localization of a protein called AMF, which is uh, BIN1 in humans, which in turn modulates postsynaptic glutamate receptor GLUR2 localization. Based on these findings, the authors propose a model where PICOM modulates glutamatergic transmission both directly and indirectly through BIN1 um, in order to ameliorate synaptic dysfunction and disease progression. So that wraps up the glutamatergic system papers, and next up we've got targeting synaptic function. The first paper in this category is on mesitinib, which is a selective tyrosine kinase inhibitor that modulates mast cell for, uh, activity and may confer some cognitive benefit in AD patients. So the title of this paper is Effects of Chronic Mesitinib Treatment in APPPS1 DE9, Transgenic Mice Modeling Alzheimer's Disease. This was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Lee and last author De La Tour. So the authors gave APPPS1 transgenic mice a chronic oral treatment of mesitinib to understand its potential therapeutic function. This was able to restore normal spatial learning performance but had no impact on amyloid beta load or on neuroinflammation. However, mesitinib promoted a recovery of synaptic markers and complete genetic depletion of mast cells in these mice also rescued synaptic impairments. These results suggest that mesitinib may act primarily through a synaptoprotective mechanism in relation with mast cell inhibition. Next, we have a paper entitled ATRIR and EPR Spectroscopy for following the membrane restoration of isolated cortical synaptosomes in aluminum-induced Alzheimer's disease-like rat model. This was published by first author Ahmed and last author Ali in Chemistry and Physics of Lipids. 
So for context, aluminum toxicity could cause synaptosomal membrane peroxidation and change the membrane's biophysical properties, which could contribute to cognitive dysfunction and AD-like pathogenesis. The authors investigated whether Lepidium sativum, or LS, could act as a natural anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and acetylcholinesterase inhibitor in an aluminum toxicity-induced rat model of AD. They used a technique called attenuated total reflection uh, infrared spectroscopy to observe restoration in the damaged membrane structure of isolated rat cortical synaptosomes in conjunction with a number of other in vitro and in vivo measures following LS treatment. Aluminum toxicity led to a number of changes in the synaptosomes. It increased membrane rigidification, order, lipid packing, reactive oxygen species production, and calcium ion concentration. The observed changes suggest that the release of synaptic vesicles into the synaptic cleft might be hindered. Treatment with LS not only reversed these changes in synaptic membranes, but also rescued an observed deficit in the exploratory behavior of these AD-like rats. This was actually a really long abstract, so I suggest that you check the paper for more mechanistic details, but suffice it to say that LS treatment may be a promising uh, therapeutic agent against synaptic membrane alterations in AD. So the last three papers in this section are actually on synaptic mechanisms in AD rather than preclinical testing. So normally these would be sorted into disease mechanisms, but they slipped through the cracks and ended up here instead. You can skip to the next section on tau pathology if you're not interested in this, or if you are interested, then I recommend you also check out the synaptic mechanisms uh, episode. So with that said, the first one looks at the role of tripartite motif containing 332, which is abbreviated to TRIM32, which has a number of important roles in the central nervous system and has been linked to several disorders, including AD. So the title is TRIM32 Deficiency Impairs Synaptic Plasticity by Excitatory Inhibitory Imbalance via Notch Pathway. This is out of the Journal of Cerebral Cortex by first author Ntim and last author Lee. The authors used a TRIM32 knockout mouse model to investigate the effects on synaptic plasticity, the neural correlate of learning and memory, in case you don't know. So using electrophysiological recordings in hippocampal slices, they show that long-term potentiation of CA1 synapses is impaired in these mice. They also found reductions in dendritic spine density, in ampi receptors, and other synaptic plasticity-related proteins. There was also an imbalance in excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmission in these TRIM32-deficient mice, which caused or which was caused by an upregulation in NMDA receptors and a downregulation in GABA receptors. This resulted in overexcitation, which likely led to the observed decrease in neuronal numbers in the hippocampus and cortex. Although this doesn't strictly relate to AD, these findings suggest that TRIM32 causes synaptic plasticity deficits that could be relevant to cognitive function. So shifting gears, this next paper looks at the role of parvalbumin or PV interneurons and whether their hyperexcitability could prime the hippocampus of amyloid beta-induced functional impairment. It was published in iScience 
by first author Hijazi and last author uh, Van Kesteren. And the title is Hyperexcitable Parvalbumin Interneurons Render Hippocampal Circuitry Vulnerable to Amyloid Beta. The authors demonstrate that prolonged chemogenetic activation of PV neurons induces long-term hyperexcitability of these cells, which in turn disrupts synaptic transmission and causes spatial memory deficits in the short term. Long-term chemogenetic activation causes pyramidal cells to become hyperexcitable as well and restores synaptic transmission and spatial memory. However, the increased excitability of both PV and pyramidal neurons makes the hippocampus particularly vulnerable to a single-dose injection of amyloid beta uh, that is delivered directly into the hippocampus, and which significantly impairs PV neuron function, increases pyramidal neuron excitability, and reduces synaptic transmission. This, in turn, results in significant spatial memory deficits. So taken together, these findings show that an initial hyperexcitable state of PV neurons increases the vulnerability of hippocampal function to amyloid beta and could contribute to an increased risk of AD. And the last paper in this section looks at improving the commonly used streptozotocin-induced model of AD. So I've talked about streptozotocin, or STZ, before in previous episodes, but in case you don't know, it kills insulin-producing beta cells and is often also used as a model of diabetes. So I'll be mentioning it again later in the other section, and I think I mentioned it er earlier in this episode as well. So this paper is titled Synaptic Loss and Amyloid Beta Alterations in the Rodent Hippocampus Induced by Streptozotocin Injection into the Cisterna Magna. It was published in Laboratory Animal Research, and there is joint first authorship between An, Sio, and Park, and the last author is Lee. And there are actually uh, quite a few authors on this paper, so it was a, a big joint collaborative effort. So although most AD mouse models using streptozotocin inject it intracerebroventricularly, this is an invasive approach which might limit the generalizability of the results. In this study, the authors produce a rodent model of AD using uh, STZ, and specifically 3 mg per kilograms, and they use an injection via the cisterna magna once a week over four weeks and analyze the results at four weeks and 16 weeks after the final injection. At the 16-week time point, they found that the group injected with STZ showed increased extracellular A-beta deposition and a decrease in the postsynaptic protein PSD95, which also exhibited abnormal morphology. The authors propose this model as a less invasive method, which still produces some expected AD-like changes, as an alternative to the previous modeling of AD with STZ. So they're proposing the injection through the cisterna magna instead of injecting straight into the brain. And I was actually wondering in a lot of these STZ models if the uh, injection straight into the brain was necessary for AD-like pathology as well as cognitive deficits, so I'd be curious if these mice also have cognitive dysfunction. I guess maybe that'll be in the next paper. So with that, let's take a brief break before turning over to Tao.
Okay, and we're back. So moving along to the targeting tau phosphorylation and tau protein section, we have two papers that explore ways of targeting tau protein and its phosphorylation. Well, that was redundant. The first explores neuroprotective mechanisms of tulfinamic acid which is an anti-inflammatory drug that has previously been shown to alleviate learning and memory deficits um, by decreasing the expression of CDK5, which is a major protein kinase that regulates hyperphosphorylated tau. This paper is called Tolfenamic Acid Inhibits GSK3-beta and PP2A-mediated tau hyperphosphorylation in Alzheimer's disease models. The first author is Zhang, and the last author is Zhu, and it was published in the Journal of Physiological Sciences. The authors investigate whether tulfinamic acid can also inhibit tau hyperphosphorylation by regulating the major tau protein kinase, which is glycogen synthase kinase 3-beta, or GSK3-beta, or by regulating the tau protein phosphatase, which is protein phosphatase 2A or PP2A. They administered tulfinamic acid by intraperitoneal injection in a GSK3-beta overactivation postnatal rat model, as well as orally in a PP2A inhibition mouse model. I'm not sure why they chose two different routes of administration for the two different models, but uh, tulfinamic acid not only attenuated memory dysfunction, but it also decreased the hyperphosphorylated tau expression by inhibiting GSK3-beta activity and decreasing PP2A phosphorylation, thereby enhancing PP2A activity. The authors also confirmed that the downstream substrates of GSK3-beta and PP2A were altered in PC12 cells, lending more evidence to the fact that tulfinamic acid inhibits tau hyperphosphorylation through these two pathways. The second paper in this subtheme targets O-linked N-acetylglucosamine modification. This is a form of O-glycosylation which influences the phosphorylation and aggregation of tau. And you might have heard me talk about this previously in the tau aggregation episode. MK8719, a novel and selective OGLC NA case inhibitor that reduces the formation of pathological tau and ameliorates neurodegeneration in a mouse model of tauopathy. The first author is Wang, and the last author is Smith, and this was published in the Journal of Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. The paper describes in vitro and in vivo pharmacological properties of MK8719, which is a novel and selective inhibitor of the OGLC NA case, or the OGA enzyme, and which could attenuate tau formation. The authors demonstrate that MK8719 is a potent inhibitor of human OGA and the corresponding mouse, rat, and dog enzymes in vitro, and that oral administration elevates OGLC NAC levels in mice, which is the expected result of inhibiting this enzyme. They use PET imaging to show MK8719 target engagement in rats and in a transgenic mouse model of tau pathology, in which they found that it reduced pathological tau and the accompanying brain atrophy. 
These findings suggest that inhibiting OGA activity could be a viable strategy in treating tauopathies, but given that O-glycosylation is an important process for many proteins, it will be crucial to test the physiological and toxicological consequences of this treatment in vivo. Next, let's turn to targeting amyloid beta, or A-beta. There are five papers in this category, and the first one, uh, we'll just launch straight into it, it's called Trehalose Inhibits A-Beta Generation and Plaque Formation in Alzheimer's Disease. This is published by first author Liu and last author Song in Molecular Neurobiology. So trehalose is a sugar consisting of two glucose molecules and has recently been suggested as having a neuroprotective effect by regulating autophagy and facilitating aggregated protein clearance. The authors wanted to determine whether trehalose can be beneficial in AD pathology and started by examining the effects of trehalose on APP processing in vitro and in vivo using western blots. They also performed ELISA and immunohistochemical staining to measure A-beta production in vitro and neuritic plaque formation in APP23 transgenic mice, respectively. Trehalose treatment significantly decreased A-beta generation in cell lines and increased APP levels and reduced both A-beta generation and neuritic plaque formation in the APP23 mice. Overall, the results show that trehalose affects APP processing both in vitro and in vivo and could ameliorate AD pathology by inhibiting A-beta generation and neurite plaque formation. Moving on, we have a paper on using immune suppression. So this one is entitled Immune Suppression of Glia Maturation Factor Reverses Behavioral Impairment, Attenuates Amyloid Plaque Pathology and Neuroinflammation in an Alzheimer's Disease Mouse Model. The first author is Ahmed, and the last author is Zahir, and it was published in the Journal of Neuroimmune Pharmacology. So these authors were previously the first to isolate and clone the neuroinflammatory protein glia maturation factor, or GMF, which appears to play a role in AD pathogenesis. In this paper, they investigate whether anti-GMF antibody could downregulate neuroinflammation and attenuate amyloid pathology. They do this by intravenously administering a single dose of anti-GMF antibody in 9-month-old 5x FAD mice, or 5x FAD mice, and evaluate the effects on cognitive function, neuroprotection, and inflammation, as well as on amyloid beta load. Four weeks after injection, they found reduced expression of GMF as well as the glial markers GFAP and IBA1 and found that various pro-inflammatory cytokines were inhibited, leading to an improved neuroinflammatory response. These changes occurred in the cerebral cortex and hippocampal CA1 region and were also accompanied by reduced amyloid pathology. Blocking GMF function also improved spatial learning and memory and long-term recognition memory in the 5X FAD mice, suggesting that the anti-inflammatory action of GMF antibody administration could be neuroprotective in AD. This next paper is also on neuroinflammation and microglia, but it's actually on a novel research tool rather than a preclinical testing paper. So it's like a little hidden Easter egg for this episode. Um, Hopefully you're interested in antibody development. If not, feel free to skip it. 
So the title is Analyzing Microglial Associated A-Beta in Alzheimer's Disease Transgenic Mice with a Novel Mid-Domain A-Beta Antibody. It was published in Scientific Reports by first author Henjem and last author Nelson. The authors characterized a novel polyclonal A-beta antibody raised against an A-beta mid-domain, which they then used to investigate microglial A-beta uptake in situ by microscopy at the light and ultrastructural levels. Specifically, they developed a rabbit A-beta mid-domain antibody, which is AB338, which is raised against the mid-domain amino acids 21 to 34 of amyloid beta. So you can check the papers for details on their antibody validation. They also tested it in brains from transgenic APP mice and found that it labeled amyloid plaques and detected A-beta fragments in microglia, which points towards the role of microglia and macrophages in A-beta clearance. All in all, the AB338 antibody could be a valuable tool for studying amyloid beta clearance by microglial uptake, and the A-beta mid-domain peptides generated by enzymatic degradation and alternate production. This next paper is just in time for the impending pumpkin spice season, for better or worse, as it looks at the therapeutic potential of cinnamon, which I had in my breakfast. So it was published in the International Journal of Molecular Science um, by first author Doe and last author Lee, and it is called Transcinnamaldehyde Alleviates Amyloid Beta Pathogenesis via uh, SIRT1 PGC1-alpha PPARY pathway in 5X FAD transgenic mice. Hopefully you know that pathway. I don't, and I'm not going to repeat it. So as cinnamon extract has previously been shown to inhibit the aggregation of tau protein and amyloid beta aggregation, the authors wanted to extend on this by evaluating the effects of transcinnamaldehyde, or TCA, which is the main component of cinnamon, and they wanted to look at its effects on amyloid beta deposition. They treated 5-month-old F, sorry, 5X FAD mice with TCA for 8 weeks, evaluated their cognitive and spatial memory function at 7 months of age, and collected the brains afterwards for immunofluorescence and biochemical analyses. TCA treatment improved cognitive impairment and reduced amyloid beta deposition in the brains of the 5X FAD mice. The authors also found decreased levels of base 1 in TCA-treated mice, whereas the mRNA and protein levels of three well-known regulators of base 1 were increased. This suggests that TCA improved AD pathology by reducing base 1 levels and could be a useful therapeutic approach. We're going to stick with foods here, and the next paper looks at the effects of something I can't really pronounce. It's Ishiji Okamure, which is an edible brown algae, and they're looking at the effects on amyloid beta 25 to 35 induced cognitive impairment and neuronal toxicity. So this was published in Molecular Nutrition and Food Research, and the paper is called Ameliorating Activity of Ishige Okamure on the amyloid beta-induced cognitive deficits and neurotoxicity through regulating ERK, P30A, MAPK, and JNK signaling in Alzheimer's disease-like mice model. And it was published by first author Kwan, and the last author is Lee. 
The authors wanted to determine the mechanisms by which extracts extracts from this algae, which I'll just call IOE, mediate anti-AD effects. They report that oral administration of IOE in mice significantly attenuated the cognitive deficits induced by amyloid beta 25-35, to as measured by Y-maze and Morris water maze tests. Likewise, it attenuated A-beta-induced cellular apoptosis and the expression of inducible isoforms of nitric oxide synthesis and cyclooxygenase 2 in both mouse brains and in PC12 cells. IOE treatment also abolished the amyloid beta-induced phosphorylation of ERK, MAPK, and JNK, and the authors showed that inhibiting these specific proteins had similar positive cellular effects to IOE treatment, but you'll have to check the paper for details on that. All in all, it appears that this algae extract could rescue amyloid beta-induced cellular and behavioral changes by preventing the phosphorylation of ERK, P38-MAPK, and JNK. The authors of this next paper aim to design and develop a selective base 1 inhibitor that could be used to treat AD. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Resende and last author Santos, and the title of the paper is New Base 1 Chimeric Peptide Inhibitors Selectively Prevent A-beta-PP-beta Cleavage, Decreasing Amyloid Beta Production and Accumulation in Alzheimer's Disease Models. Sometimes I start a sentence without really knowing where it's going, and I think my intonation is a bit messed up, but um, you can check the bibliography for details. And as a reminder, you can either sign up for the bibliography through our episode notes, or you can email us directly. The authors developed base 1 inhibitors that are more cell membrane permeable and are better at crossing the blood-brain barrier. They engineer two chimeric peptides, one is the L-form and the other the D-retro-inverso, the latter of which has never been used but has a significantly higher half-life and lower immunogenicity. Both chimeric peptides inhibited recombinant base 1 activity and decreased amyloid beta 40-42 production in neuro-2A or N2A cells expressing APP pathogenic mutation, and this occurred without inducing cytotoxicity. They next tested intraperitoneal administration of these peptides to 3X transgenic AD mice, and they found that it decreased plasma and brain amyloid beta levels, as well as brain-soluble APP beta production. The chimeric peptides were selective in inhibiting A-beta-PP-beta cleavage as compared to the proteolysis of other base 1. These results suggest that the newly developed base 1 chimeric peptides hold potential as a selective disease-modifying therapy for AD. Okay, For some reason, I struggled to get through that one. I re-recorded it several times and it still came out a bit weird. Um, Check out the paper if you want more details. So next we have uh, four papers in the other sub-theme. So these are papers that explore neuroprotective mechanisms but don't fit into our usual themes. And the first one is on SORLA, which is a transmembrane trafficking protein that has been associated with AD risk. 
The title of this paper is Soluble Sorla Enhances Neurite Outgrowth and Regeneration Through Activation of the EGF Receptor slash ERK Signaling Axis. It was published in the Journal of Neuroscience by first author Stupak and, or Stupak and last author Huang. So the authors demonstrate that overexpressing sorla in cultured neurons causes longer neurites and accelerated neurite regeneration after wounding, likely due to the enhanced release of a soluble form of sorla, which they call S-sorla. Both in these cultures and in the hippocampus of sorla transgenic mice, this increased sorla expression is linked to changes in the epidermal growth factor, or the EGFR slash ERK pathway. In fact, S-sorla co-precipitates with EGFR in vitro, and S-sorla treatment increases the phosphorylation and subsequent activation of ERK in cultured neurons. Moreover, inhibiting EGFR, or ERK, reverses the S-sorla-dependent enhancement of neurite outgrowth. The authors also identify some downstream ERK effectors activated by S-sorla, so you can check the paper for details on that. Overall, their findings demonstrate a role for soluble SORLA in promoting neurite regeneration through the EGF receptor, which could be neuroprotective. The next two papers explore the mechanistic link between AD and type 2 diabetes mellitus and whether this could lead to clues for treatment. So the first one is entitled, Inhibition of mTORC1 Improves STZ-Induced AD-Like Impairments in Mice. It was published in Brain Research Bulletin by first author Cao and last author Zhu. Now, I've already mentioned streptozootocin a few times, but just to give you some background, it's used to model type 2 diabetes um, when injected low-dose intraperitoneally, and it's used to model AD when injected twice intracerebroventricularly. So in this paper, the authors tested these two different models, and they actually found that memory disorders, impairment of insulin signaling, and AD-like tauopathies were similar between the two. So I guess that answers my earlier question of whether um, streptozootocin needs to be injected straight into the brain in order to have cognitive effects. They also show that both models have an increase in the level of advanced glycation end products, or AGES, which could be decreased by inhibiting mTORC1 using rapamycin. This also reversed the deficits in insulin signaling and the AD-like tau phosphorylation, and improved memory deficits in both streptozootocin mouse models. The authors also used rapamycin in SHSY5Y cells to show that it acts on the AKT AMPK GSK3 beta pathway to attenuate the observed tau hyperphosphorylation. These findings indicate that rapamycin can regulate insulin signaling and improve streptozootocin-induced AD-like tauopathies and memory deficits in mice, and I encourage you to check the paper for more mechanistic details. Here's another one um, looking at the link between diabetes and AD, but I'm going to be very brief with my summary as it doesn't pertain to AD treatment per se. It is called Elevated Circulating Amyloid Concentrations in Obesity and Diabetes Promotes Vascular Dysfunction, and it is published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation by first author Meakin and last author Ashford. 
The authors explored the causal relationship between obesity and diabetes, increased amyloid beta, and vascular dysfunction. They report that diet-induced obesity in mice increased plasma and vascular amyloid beta-42, which correlated with increased blood pressure, endothelial dysfunction, and a reduction in nitric oxide bioavailability. This is paralleled in humans, where increased plasma A-beta-42 correlates with diabetes and endothelial dysfunction. The authors report that reducing base 1 activity and amyloid beta-42 in these mice prevented and reversed, respectively, these adverse outcomes. This suggests that base 1 inhibitors may be useful in treating vascular disease associated with diabetes. I'm pretty curious about the link between AD and diabetes. It's something that I didn't know much about until I started recording the Modifiable Risk Factors episode, but there's also a link between diabetes and Parkinson's disease. So I'm curious how, well, how the link diverges and converges uh, mechanistically between these two disorders. Anyway, that brings us to the very last paper in this episode, which is on aquaporins. These are water channel proteins expressed throughout the central nervous system. The title of the paper is Silencing of Aquaporin Activates the Wnt Signaling Pathway to Improve Cognitive Function in a Mouse Model of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Yu, the last author is Sun, and it was published in Gene. So this study investigated the effects of aquaporin-1 on cognitive function in amyloid beta-induced mouse model of AD. The authors used gain-of-function and loss-of-function approaches to measure the effects of aquaporin-1 on cognitive function in these mice, as assessed by the step-through test and water maze experiment. They found that aquaporin-1 was highly expressed in the AD mouse model and that silencing it improved cognitive function. They also found protective effects of aquaporin-1 silencing in cultured hippocampal neurons and the protein normally inhibits the Wnt signaling pathway, thereby promoting neuronal apoptosis. The authors conclude that aquaporin-1 could be a therapeutic target in AD. That's it for my episode on preclinical treatment for papers published in June 2020. We have two other episodes in this category, so check them out. And we're taking a break for July papers, but we'll be back in September with our summaries for August 2020 papers. Until then, enjoy the rest of your summer, Um, enjoy the other episodes published here, and I will talk to you again very soon. That's it for this episode. A huge thank you to the team that is working on sorting, summarizing, and scripting these abstracts, as well as the operations behind Aminder. The music is from Journey of a Neurotransmitter by Nusha Kamesh, musician and fellow scientist, and a member of the Aminder team. You can find the original piece and her other music on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh or on her YouTube channel, AK Music. Interested in joining the team? Give us a shout! We can always use help with content development, podcast editing, advertising, and you can be part of a new and exciting venture. Reach us by email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter. Oh, we're also on Facebook now. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list if you want access to the bibliography for each of our episodes. The references come with timestamps. Hmm, timestamps. So you can more easily locate the paper that caught your interest. Check our notes below for details on how to sign up. And very close to this, you'll also find a link to our feedback survey. 
because yeah your feedback matters to us so please pretty please let us know how we can make this podcast a better tool for you and last but not least thank you for tuning in with us and on this note we hope you found our podcast useful and accessible until next time